Uh, we acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, uh, the Wodjuk people, uh, on whose country uh, we conduct our meditation and our ceremonies tonight. The topic of this talk is Buddha's enlightenment and how uh, we live it in daily life. It's a talk for Bodhi Day, the commemoration of Buddha's enlightenment, uh, which is on Monday, December the 8th. Uh, and uh, I want to um, acknowledge uh, uh, Kathy and Lisa, who are sitting session uh, with, uh, in, with Glenn Wallace teaching in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand. This is her Ahatsu session. It finishes on December the 8th. And uh, although they don't sit all night on the last night, they sit far uh, into the night on that uh, last night of December the 8th. Uh, so uh, tonight we are kind of spread out <laughs> um, and a little ahead of the beat uh, in terms of the day. Please sit comfortably. If you are already comfortable, that's fine. I normally start um, talk on Buddhist enlightenment by uh, uh, talking about the legends and that first up, but uh, I was hearing a program on the ABC today which recommended that you do the headlines first, so I thought I'd do a couple of headlines before doing uh, myth and history. So the way, uh, the Buddha way, uh, is the expression of the Buddhist enlightenment. Uh, it is also something which is deeply part of humankind, uh, not exclusively the Buddha. Um, it goes back uh, far beyond the Buddha. Uh, it's a, an ancient way and is innate to human beings and probably to all sentient uh, beings. It's ancient but it is as fresh as this moment, right now. The path opens here and now, and you don't have to go and climb a mountain or even walk to the marketplace to experience it. Buddhism talks about bringing the mountain to the marketplace and all of that. You don't even have to go to the marketplace. Okay. Uh, maybe better not. Uh, so, what are you feeling at this moment? What are you hearing? Just this, just this, right now. What's the taste of your mouth? When we are intimate with the uh, fullness of the moment, um, we have our life in its fullness. This is so important. Uh, when you practice uh, the way, when you practice the Buddha way, uh, breathing in, breathing out, uh, being fully present to breathing in, being fully present to breathing out, um, you become intimate with the moment of breath. Uh, over time you become intimate with the moment uh, in its vastness and its fullness. We don't just have our life when we start to experience like that. We are it. There's no separation at all. And our life in turn is unconfined in space and time. At the same time, we are born, we have a name, we have occupations, we have friends, we have relations, and we all eventually die. This is also true in the same breath. Uh, no arduous pilgrimage is necessary for us to experience this. Uh, you don't have to enter a monastery, uh, and we practice in the monastery with no walls. Uh, the walls of the monastery in which we practice are the night sky, uh, the ocean, and the floorboards.
when we live uh, the same way. Um, the world's not some painted backdrop to our ambitions and our needs to be in control. We tend to think of our, our lives and in its particularity with our particular worries and our particular needs um, and the rest of it turns into some kind of backdrop. Um, but actually uh, we are intimate with that backdrop. There is no such thing as backdrop there. Uh, you are not separate. I was going to reach for traffic, but for the, very rarely there is no traffic that I can hear at the moment. But you, uh, there is no painted backdrop to your life. Whatever our worries and concerns, there is always something larger uh, which is present. And uh, the Zen way, the way that proceeds from the Buddhist enlightenment, uh, opens us to that. Um, we may be irritated, but the sky is blue and the sunlight is very bright. And if you're irritated in the evening, the sky is dark and the candlelight is bright. Uh, Practising the Zen way uh, opens us to this larger matter. Even in the very, very worst of it, in our heart of hearts, there is something which does not come and go. Even in the midst of the tragedies of our lives and of those we love. At the same time, uh, it is as simple as reaching behind your head in the middle of the night to adjust a pillow. Putting your feet on the cold floor when you get out of bed in the morning. Sitting in meditation. Making your first cup of coffee for the day. Getting dressed for work. Driving to work. Waiting for your computer to boot up. Now there's an opportunity to come back to your practice. Uh, the day is full of those great opportunities. Computer booting up is a wonderful one. Um, okay. Most kind of anxious to see what, what emails have arrived and that, but actually just to contain that uh, in that larger thing and come back to breathing and come back to the largeness of the moment or come back to your calm. We have inherited an amazing path, one that liberates us from... Uh, mean-spirited delusions, helps us to abandon attachment and to experience the depths of our humanity, which are also the depths of the universe. So how did it all begin? Well, it's all kind of shrouded uh, in myth and mystery. But we know that roughly four or five or six centuries before the Christian era, uh, a remarkable sage was born. Uh, his name was Gautama Siddhartha, or as we know him more familiarly, Shakyamuni Buddha, or simply the Buddha. We begin in myth and dream here, for we seek not literal truth, but archetypes to inspire our lives. The story goes, this is a story from, uh, has told, each time we do this um, uh, Buddha's enlightenment, I try and get a different source of story. Um, uh, this one comes from James Ishmael Ford. Long ago, a queen named Love learned she was pregnant. The king called together his astrologers and sages and asked them to chart the destiny of this child uh, that was yet to be born. They conferred with the stars and the ancient texts. The Queen told them that she first knew she was pregnant when she dreamed that four divas, uh, divas are celestial beings, and it's rumoured that they ride about on winged dragon deer, um, 
in, often translated when translated in the West as unicorns. Uh, it's misleading, but um, I think it makes more sense to uh, Western readers. And these uh, celestial beings, the divas, escorted to her to a hidden valley and brought her to the edge of a limpid pool of water. The divas bathed her, gave her clothing even more beautiful than her own, sprinkled perfume on her and braided flowers into her hair. As she stood there, a great white elephant holding a lotus flower in its trunk came to her, circled around her three times and then magically walked into her right side. Wow. Um, the the councillors went to the king with their predictions for the child. There was no doubt, they told him, that this was to be a remarkable child and that there were two paths this child might grow up to walk. The first was to become a great warrior king, unifying all countries under a single banner, no doubt the banner of the Shakya clan. Uh, was, this is the king of the Shakyas. The second was to become a sage, a great spiritual teacher who would unfold a path that would offer liberation from the bondage of human suffering, a path to the healing of the human heart. <clears throat> Hoping for the first option and dreading the second, the king decided the only way to guide his child to worldly success would be to isolate him from anything that might spark, might spark the spiritual quest. And so he created a pleasure palace where the child would never be confronted with the sorrows of human life. These attempts to meddle with destiny usually come, uh, don't work. Um, I think we know this as human beings when we, we try to uh, shape the future too consciously and too deliberately. Actually, there were three palaces, one for each season of the year, and there Shakyamuni enjoyed himself in the company of his friends and lovers. At the age of 16, he married his cousin, a beautiful princess named Yasodhara, and lived a contented life in the Shakyam, cap Shakyam capital, Kapalavastu. During this time, he was probably trained in the martial arts and the skills of statecraft. It seems that the genie that could grant an infinity of wishes was there at his command. <clears throat> Hedonism, like asceticism, can be a tough path, however. Uh, even excess becomes boring, and power and time brings onerous responsibility and the ever-present fear of losing it. Accordingly, when the prince reached his late 20s, he became increasingly troubled about questions concerning the purpose and meaning of life, his life in particular. Is the purpose of our existence the enjoyment of sensual pleasures, <clears throat> the achievement of status and the exercise of power, or is there something beyond these that is more real and fulfilling? These questions obsessed him but he manages to escape from the palace. Um, uh, on one of his surreptitious visits to the world outside, he escapes with a charioteer. He encounters an old person, a sick person and a corpse. Haunted by these sights, the young prince returned to the palace. These scenes would not leave his dreams and would rise unbidden at the strangest time during the day. He manages to get out of the palace once again and encounters a monk um, who's dressed in rags, but there is something about the spirit and the radiance of this monk which deeply touches the prince. This shows him a way of life uh, that can support his inquiry into deeper meaning. From these four signs he intuits, in fact knows in his deepest being that he must leave the palace and embark into his quest. At the age of 29, Chakyamuni leaves his wife and child. In the prime of his life, with his wife and his parents weeping, he cut off his hair and beard put on the saffron robes of a mendicant 
and entered upon the homeless life of a renunciant. It is said that he left the palace on the very day that his wife, Yasodhara, gave birth to their only child, the boy Rahula. Um, which terrible irony means fetters, as in chains which bind. We could say, and it has often been said, that Shakyamuni missed out on the path of family and lost the opportunity to find the middle way in the responsibilities of marriage and bringing up a family. As lay people, we practice the way in the midst of our everyday life, which may include marriage and children. But the way that we practice depends in measure on Shakyamuni's discovery of this way and his teachings concerning it. In terms of his quest, Shakyamuni Buddha did what he had to do and we are the beneficiaries uh, according to our circumstances and needs. But uh, home leaving, uh, the leaving of families uh, marks all of early Buddhism and this is not confined to Indian Buddhism, it's also very strong in Chinese Buddhism um, and is driven very, very hard. Um, and uh, this is the tradition out of uh, which we come. You know, old traditions, one of the, the huge virtues, this is a tradition 2,500 years or so uh, old. Um, it's tried, it's tested. Um, thousands have walked this path and have deepened and changed their lives and transformed their lives and transformed their relation with others. And at the same time, uh, ancient paths, there's a great image uh, for the path. With Shakyamuni's enlightenment, um, Kezan uh, commenting on it said, on the great plum tree, uh, a branch spreads splendidly forth. Uh, it's an image of the enlightenment of the Buddha. And then he says, and thorns become attached to it in time. Uh, thorns are thinking about it, uh, commentaries on it, confusing uh, misinterpretations of the path, uh, established patterns of behaviour like misogyny uh, over centuries. Um, so there are advantages to an ancient path and they also accumulate um, disadvantages also uh, over time and with custom. We're very fortunate in the West that um, the path comes to us here in lay life. It's a new path in terms of the West and it's one which has been uh, inclusive of women, inclusive of families. Um, the, the powerful truth is that people can awaken in the midst of their everyday life. Um, this is the power and the beauty of the way. Um, it is the roots of that go way, way back in the tradition, but uh, it's a living reality for people in the West, and uh, we're fortunate. Back to the Buddha. So he starts his quest with the study of the philosophies and meditation systems of his day. He heads south for Magadha, in whose environs small groups of seekers were quietly pursuing their quest for spiritual illumination, usually under the guidance of a guru. At the time, northern India could boast a number of accomplished masters famous for their philosophical systems and achievements in meditation. Shakyamuni mastered their teachings and systems of meditation, but although he reached exalted levels of concentration, he found these teachings insufficient for they did not lead to the goal he was seeking, release from the sufferings of sentient experience. 
but through arduous training he became the prince of philosophers and the prince of meditators. However, it was not enough for him. Uh, each of his two major teachers uh, wanted him to co-teach uh, with them. But uh, he didn't stay. So he then embarked on a path of extreme privation, extreme asceticism. It's said that for a time he survived on a single grain of rice a day. They say that you can survive on an, uh, an egg and an orange uh, a day, but your body doesn't like you very much. I'm sure if you're surviving on a grain of rice a day, your body doesn't like you at all. Even as the, Buddha, uh, the Shakyamuni grew more and more emaciated, his persistence attracted other seekers and soon he had five companions, each striving harder and harder to separate themselves from the clinging to the body. He went, this went on for years. He almost died. He was the almost dead prince of the ascetics. Out of his near catastrophe comes the middle way, which avoids the extremes of sensual indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. Shakyamuni had experienced both extremes, the former as a prince and the latter as an ascetic, and he knew they were ultimately dead ends of both of those. You know, with the, when we practice the way, there is a kind of natural asceticism which uh, grows with practice. I mean, it's not asceticism of living on a grain of rice a day, but um, the common experience is that sitting that over time, over years, we seem to need less distraction, perhaps, in our lives. That the very ordinary things um, become fascinating and we're happy to stay with... Um, the with the simplicity of life. Um, it also brings a patience. Um, I mean, this patience of simply listening ourselves away when someone is telling us um, their troubles, for instance, and not feeling the restlessness or not trying to complete their sentences uh, for them or that. Uh, just the fact that it just becomes what it is. And we, with this natural assessment, I think we're a little less needy. Um, and if we are needy, we are more aware that we are needy. I mean, perfectionism is a trap in all of this, but especially in something like you know, the Buddha's enlightenment, which brings out that whole aspect that we, we have to be extraordinary. But actually, being perfectly ordinary is just fine. That perfectionism of trying to get rid of the fly in the ointment. Uh, there's always a fly in the ointment. There's always one member of the band that we don't get on with and that the band would be a lot better if they weren't in the band. So we constantly, especially when our lives are pretty good, we constantly play that edge of trying to fix the last bit. Uh, then it will be perfect. Um, but it's a trap. It never works. And when one, is, one thing is resolved, another band member arrives and is, uh, even uh, compromises the band even more. Uh, I think that stuff is always doomed. And it comes out of good lives when life is good. If we're beset with tragedy, those things don't even come up. They don't even figure. Um, but that attempt to close the last gap is, is a trap. And I think that with sitting, we we get less preoccupied with that. It's just like the band is what it is, you know? Um, he always slows down when he does drum fills, you know, but it's okay. You can pick up the tempo. So, To achieve uh, the, I'm having trouble with <laughs> articulation tonight. Um, Shakyamuni um, 
realizing that he would simply die if this continued. Um, he gave up the practice of austerities and resumed taking nutritious food. And the story goes that a girl from the village, whose name was uh, Sujata, uh, discovering him at the point of death, gave him milk and rice to revive him and continued doing this until his strength returned. At the time when the other five other ascetics, at this time the five other ascetics who had been attending him, hoping that he, when he attained enlightenment, he would serve as their guide, saw him partake of food and drink. They became disgusted with him and left him, thinking this princely ascetic had given up his exertions and returned to a life of luxury. It was only milk and rice. <laughs> when we are hard on ourselves, uh, we are also hard on others. Uh, ascetics you know, are very hard on themselves, and so they are very hard on him. Good to notice your critical voice, especially when you screw up. Incredibly rude, lucidly rude uh, voice. Where did it come from? Restored and solitary at last, Shakyamuni undertook to awaken and to find liberation. Um, these stories are highly constructed. Um, doesn't mean they don't contain deep truths, but, you know, uh, on the one side there is the life of luxury of the prince, on the other side there is the, the extremities of asceticism. Um, so he inhabits both of those extremes, uh, abandons both, in a sense, uh, creates a middle way. He walks between those extremes. You know, middle way is what is what is suggested by that is that uh, he takes milk and rice. One of the boys from the village brings him some grass to sit on and he sits down under the Bodhi tree um, in some kind of relative comfort. And it's, it's not a luxury, uh, nor, nor is it as deathly uh, asceticism. Um, so it's middle way. But at the same time, middle way is radical. It's not just the average between extremes. There's lots of talk in Buddhism about tuning the strings of, a, say, of a sitar and uh, not uh, over-tuning it so that it's very, very sharp and the strings break, uh, or under-tuning it so that they're slack. So there's that kind of middle way, finding that middle. And we do this in our lives all the time, instinctually. But the uh, middle way is also radical. It's stepping clear of those conceptions altogether. And, with that, you get more of the spirit of the Zen way. Um, the middle way is a radical way. Uh, invoke the idea, uh, invoke the notion of time and timelessness appears. That kind of middle way. Invoke the notion of the moment and uh, uh, timeless eternity appears. He sat resolutely for 49 days and night under the Bodhi tree. It's said that his koan under the Bodhi tree was, why do we suffer? Which fits with the earlier story um, about the things that actually got him moving on his quest. Depending on what tradition you uh, practice in and study, um, the things that happened to Shakyamuni under the Bodhi tree vary hugely from tradition to tradition. In Zen, it takes till about the 13th century before the actual um, uh, story of uh, what happens under the Bodhi tree. Uh, it takes that long for it to develop over centuries. That story, uh, that myth uh, grows. It's all right. 
It didn't spring spontaneously. So on the morning of the 49th day, Shakyamuni looked up and saw the morning star and exclaimed, Tonight I and all beings have attained the way. So what did he realise? This is the foundation myth of our Zen tradition. It's the source of the great stream of the Zen way and provides us with the deepest encouragement to awaken and confirm who we truly are and always have been and to walk the way into our life. So at that moment of awakening, what did he realise? What was it that had him sweepingly exclaim that he and all beings, including you and me, in that instant had attained the way? Other sources have the Buddha exclaiming, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from bearing witness to it. There are many statements about this. This one is geared more to what blocks the light for us. The Tathagata, this word Tathagata, the Tathagata is the one who is intimate with the whole of reality beyond all considerations of coming and going. By referring to himself as the Tathagata, the Buddha avoided the personal pronoun I with its limiting implications. It is as though the scope and profundity of his experience demanded a new, though still inadequate, designation. Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. All beings are this. This one. That's what he's saying. Just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from seeing that. This is also the source of our suffering. The suffering is very complex uh, here. I'll just, I want to just tease it out a little. So, not Shakyamuni, Yasutani, Hako and Yasutani, who was one of Aiken Roshi's teachers, Japanese teachers, said that the fundamental delusion of humanity is that I am in here and you are out there. See how this relates to the Tathagata notion. I am in here and you are out there. And we live our lives in terms of this um, conception. The I that is in here is that, like the ghost in the machine, Gilbert Ryle's expression, um, and I'm just referring back to Descartes, a big philosophical tradition behind all of this as well. But, um, you know, when you sit there and do your meditation practice and you are experiencing your breath um, and being aware of thoughts arising and having pain in me, there is no observer at all. Uh, conventionally we uh, attach an owner to our thoughts and our dreams and our sensations and our feelings. 
conventionally. But with realizations such as the Buddha's realization under the Bodhi tree, um, we realize that there is no such entity. So where does that leave you? Well, everything looks after itself. It's okay. Doesn't matter. It's a relief. It's a release. So, this is for the Buddha, release from suffering. And I think very much this is to be understood primarily as a release from existential anguish. Um, suffering includes a lot of physical pain, all from ranging from irritation all the way to the pain, the huge pain of cancer. Um, its real purchase here, release, is release from uh, the anguish of living our lives according to that delusion, me in here, you out there, with all that consequential stuff. This is cleared up in that experience. So basic questions uh, such as, who am I? Uh, where do I come from? Where am I going? Uh, also resolved in that experience. Questions like, what is your, my relation to reality uh, are resolved in that experience. I don't believe that that experience ameliorates um, severe physical pain, uh, for instance, which is very much part of suffering. Pain may be borne more readily. Um, some of our pain doesn't feel so personal, but In cases of extreme pain, uh, palliation is a very good thing. And uh, you may practice deeply, but it doesn't clear that up. So it's important to make distinctions here within the, in the field of suffering. Um, if your experience is different from mine, I really would be very happy to hear it. So for several weeks after his awakening, uh, the Buddha stayed in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, enjoying the bliss of his awakening. And the question arose, should he try to share his meditation with others, or should he remain quietly in the forest, enjoying the bliss of liberation alone? He opted to come out of the forest, to come down from the mountain, and then to spend the next more than 40 years walking the back roads of India. Those wonderful little folk, for the sake of those with a little dust in their eyes. Teaching all comers according to their needs. It's wonderful. Whoever was before him, uh, the Buddha, uh, responded appropriately to that person. Uh, there's a an ancient Khan coming from Yun Men. What was the teaching that Shakyamuni taught throughout his life? This sounds like a question about the essence of Buddhism or something like that. What was the central teaching? What was the teaching he taught right throughout his life? And uh, the teacher of Yun Men in this case responded, one teaching in response.
We respond to the person who is there according to their needs. He taught for 40 years or more than 40 years and he didn't have an easy time of it either. Uh, schisms within his sangha, power struggles, uh, difficulties um, with, with monks. And there's an image from towards the end of his life where he has remonstrated with, uh, with the king to prevent a war and uh, he sits on the side, you know, he, he fails and he's sitting on the side of the road as the troops march uh, past. So although it sounds from this distance to be a transcendent life, and in a way it was, it was also a very difficult life as well. I just tell uh, what we call Zen uh, is dhyana uh, in the Indian traditions. Indian traditions go of, of uh, Buddhism in India go for nearly a thousand years before that moved to China. We tend to actually compress history looking back, but it, it was immense. So 28 generations of teachers before the way goes from India to China. I think it's about the 5th or 6th uh, centuries. And the great flowering of what we think of as Zen actually takes place largely in China. Uh, and it's, uh, it's called Chan uh, Buddhism in China. And that goes from roughly the 6th century to the 13th century. And Zen has this, um, and then it becomes Zen when it becomes Japan. So it starts with Dhyana, becomes Chan, becomes Zen. It takes a long time. And every time it starts, it begins to die. It dies in India. It, it leaps somewhere else. So it goes to China. From China it spreads to Vietnam. From China it spreads to Korea. And by the 12th or 13th century, it comes to Japan. Um, the Chinese genius is huge in this. And almost all of what we think of as Zen is actually comes uh, from Chinese sources rather than Japanese sources. This is the popular conception. I just want to tell one story. I would like to tell heaps of stories, but just the, this is one that gives something of the taste of, of Zen in China. Matsu, who is the old teacher. <laughs> These guys are never far distant. He's walking out with his student, Pa Chang, and uh, they're walking through uh, near a swamp, and they disturb some ducks, and the ducks fly up. And uh, Matsu, who's the teacher here, he says to Pa Chang, what was that? Pa Chang said, ducks. Matsu, teacher says, where did they go? Pa Chang, it's very beautiful because he's just been quite, just quite truthful and quite literal. He says, oh, they flew away. Uh, Matsu grabs Pai Chang by the nose and twists his nose. Ah! And then Matsu says, why, they didn't fly away at all. This the spirit of, of Chan is wrapped up in that little, tiny little story. There are hundreds of stories like this, lovingly collected, written down often centuries after the teacher died. Um, so they, oh, <laughs> you know, you get to know nothing of the teacher's uh, predilections or um, or faults uh, or um, difficulties with sangha, uh, the sangha, any of that. It's all which way you've just got this series of stories, um, beautifully polished, that come down and that continue to inspire students of the way. 
thousand years later. Pai Chung, the, the student, here becomes a teacher in turn himself, and uh, he introduces Samu, what we call Samu, which is work practice. And, uh, he's known for his saying, a day without working is a day without eating. And, uh, even when he was in his 80s, he was out there with the spade uh, digging in the garden. And his students, um, alarmed actually to see this, uh, would hide his tools so he couldn't get them. It seems he always managed to find them and was back out there the next day uh, doing the work. This is very important in the West uh, for us because we, we, generally we are people who have jobs and we work. Um, but it was Pai Chang who settled this notion that work is essential, uh, both pragmatically for the monastery but also for your life. Um, and that it is, it is practice itself. It's not just sitting on your cushion, uh, getting into a very blissful and pleasant state and trying to, very hard to remain there. Subhana Basagi says it's in the garden where where words are said and tears are shed. So if you go to a monastery, most people think of going to a monastery is very peaceful, but when you're there and you're doing heavy work and you're having to work with other people and deal with all of that dynamic, it's, I think it is, I haven't done it, but I think it's very challenging indeed. And when you're living very close with others, with no privacy, um, everything um, bruises and abrades. So have it good. <laughs> You have private space, a space where you can sit, where you can have an altar, where you can put flowers um, and devote yourself to practice. But still you go to work and you deal with the difficulties of working with others. Essential for practice. Chan when Dhyana, uh, when Indian Buddhism comes to China, it fuses with, uh, with Taoism uh, and with Confucianism. Um, it's pragmatic, much more pragmatic, um, humorous. Um, it's wild, it, it's, it's wild, as you know from the wild duck story, and there are heaps of stories like this. But it's also kind of Australian in feel. I mean, the Australian sky, and if you go into the outback, you know, the vastness, even here in the metropolitan area, the vastness of that sky, um, the red earth, um, the huge expanses, are in some ways not unlike parts of China. So I think there's a deep affinity between Chinese Chan and Australian uh, Zen. Whenever I'm not in Australia, what I miss initially is the sky. And Ku, uh, the Chinese uh, character of the sky, was used by the first uh, Kumarajiva who translated the sutras that came from India. It trans took two or three hundred years to do this. It's a huge translation thing. But there's no word for emptiness. There's no word for the Sanskrit word shunyata, emptiness. Um, so Kumarajiva completely stuck for a, a word in Chinese. She used the word for sky which is really beautiful. So it's, uh, this is uh, the Australian Zen. It's got big affinities with all, all of this. Zen, in the, they say that the first hundred years um, when, a, when a spiritual tradition jumps into another culture, the first hundred years are the most difficult. So we're about 120 years in, I think, since the Zen came to the West, to the United States, to Europe, to Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, many other places, within Europe, to Germany, France, England, 
It's still in its infancy. However, in the hundred years or so that it's been practiced, Zen has largely emerged from its traditional monastic context and has accommodated itself to the milieu of family and work as a path for women and men of all ages. In particular, the rise of women in leadership has no parallel in the history of Buddhism, which is, uh, like many spiritual traditions, quite misogynist. Today, nearly half of all Zen teachers in the West are women, uh, including, um, I think, uh, immediately of Mary Ridman, who co-teaches here with me. Uh, Sabana Basagi, Susan Murphy, Gillian Coote, uh, and in America, uh, Jan Chozen Bays, Melissa Miozen Blacker, Joan Halifax, uh, Zenke Blanche Hartman, uh, Wendy Egyoku Nakao, Barbara Rhodes, and Joan Sutherland. This is, and this just just to name a few at the start of a significantly long list. a powerful, compelling presentation of the reality that women have been an integral part of the Buddha Dharma from its inception, and especially within Zen, can be found in Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon's The Hidden Lamp, stories from 25 centuries of awakened women. This is some, a, a marvellous book, and I recommend it to all of you. Um, it's called The Hidden Lamp, and uh, it traces, so there are stories of women going right back to the time of the Buddha and awakening experiences and kinds. One that comes to mind, I can never shake, it's really beautiful, it's very simple. Uh, it's Amy Holloway's koan. She, her koan is, who benefits from your generosity? Hmm? Who benefits from your generosity? Believe you me, this is not making about a list, making a list of the charities that you support. There is something much deeper in play. Although it's good to support charities, um, it's not about that. So who benefits from the generosity? Um, it's nearly nine o'clock. Um, and uh, I think I, <laughs> I have an appointment. <laughs> Some of you probably need to get to bed. Let's do our sutras. Um, I apologise for the lack of opportunity to ask questions.